Our scripture passage comes from two books of the Bible this morning. We'll be reading from Luke and from the book of Philippians. First from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now looking at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, this morning as we reflect on the servanthood and love of your son in coming to this world, may his message not be lost on us. May we be moved by the servanthood of Christ to serve others and to prefer the needs of others above ourselves. Would you give us ears to hear? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been focused on the incarnation of Christ. The, the first week, if I could be simplistic, we looked at the what of the incarnation, what actually happened. And in answer, these, the answer was the Son of God was made man. Last week, we looked at the, the how of the incarnation. How is it that the Son became man? How did God do this? And the answer was, it was by the Holy Spirit. And we looked at the importance of the Spirit's work, not only in the incarnation, but in the whole life and ministry of Jesus. And really, we looked at the whole ministry of all three persons of the Trinity to the life and ministry and the incarnation of Jesus. But today, here we are. It's Christmas Eve, we are on the the cusp of celebrating the Incarnation, 
And in this moment, today's text takes us not to the what and not to the how, but it takes us to the so what of the incarnation. Right? So he was made man. So what? So he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. So what? And we turn to the Apostle Paul today because Paul has an answer to that question. Paul is writing to a church that is in need of direction. It's a church that's in need of instruction. It is a church that needs to hear the so what of Christmas. They, this church needs to hear the so what of the incarnation. And for Paul in this moment, uh, he is searching for the, the best reason that he could possibly give why the people of this church ought to be servants to one another. And he goes to the greatest example you could find in all of history, the very incarnation of the son. And his answer is the son was made man and humbled himself. He was made man and he served. He was made man and he put aside his rights. That's what he wants us to do too. You see, for Paul, the fact that Christ is incarnate, the fact that he was born, the fact that he lived in service, setting aside his rights, means something for us. It means something for our lives. It means something for the way we should think of ourselves and the way we should live too. And so this morning, Paul draws a lesson from the birth of Jesus that we may not often think of, the call to humble service. And Paul does this with what many biblical scholars think may be the earliest example of a creed of the church. It's really a creed that goes back perhaps all the way to just after the incarnation, and it's written in the form of a hymn. Uh, If you are in your Bibles and you're looking in the book of Philippians, you may notice that it's structured in a way that makes it look like a poem. It makes it look like a hymn, and that is very much on purpose because, as the best translators can tell us, this appears to be a hymn of the church. And so this hymn slash creed that Paul quotes here highlights three beautiful truths that I want us to meditate on this morning, each of them building upon one another. The first is a forsaken glory. The second is a human form. And then third is an exalted result. When God calls us to be humble, when he calls us to serve, he is really calling us to do what his son did first. So the first truth that this passage confronts us with is what I'm calling a forsaken glory. A forsaken glory. If you want to know what Jesus gave up, you must know what he had to begin with. And that's why Paul makes this reference in verse 6. He, he says it. It's a, it's a phrase that contains a universe of meaning. And it's so meaty and substantive. And, and yet he puts it so simply. He says in verse 6, he was in the form of God. He was in the form of God. Um, you want to know what he gave up, you start here. The form of God. Uh, there's a lot bound up in this because the words just sort of barely get at the reality. Um, it's almost like when you're talking about an iceberg and you know with icebergs that there is the, the tip, there's the part everyone sees, and then there is the true substance of the iceberg that's buried far underneath. And yet all we see is sort of this little top sort of poking out. And, and that's it right here. The form of God. That's the thing poking out. And yet there's this universe of meaning underneath of all of it. You see, it isn't just that Jesus was in the form of God. 
But it's really about that weighty truth underneath of it, who Jesus really is at his most fundamental level. And you may have heard this and heard this over the last few weeks. You see, you have this person with two natures, one nature fully divine, one nature is fully human, and they're here together united to this one person, the person that we call Jesus. But when we talk about the Son of God taking on himself a human nature, we are talking about a person who comes from the highest pinnacle of glory. Before the incarnation. That's really what we're talking about when we say he was in the form of God. Before the incarnation, we know from God's word, this is not just speculation, this is from the scriptures. Jesus reveals to us these things. We know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed eternally together in perfect harmony, perfect love, perfect joy. The Son enjoying the eternal glory of the Father and the Spirit lacking nothing. And so Jesus does not become incarnate because, well, God was missing something or because God was lacking something or because God was in need of something. He says in his word, there is nothing that we have that is not already his. Um, Jonathan Edwards, uh, famous theologian from the uh, early years of the uh, American colonies, uh, wrote very, very extensively on this exact question of why is it that Jesus becomes incarnate in the first place if God is not lacking anything? And, and one of the things that Jonathan Edwards points out is that he came into the world because he was full, not because he was empty. He didn't enter into the world seeking something within himself to satisfy or fill up. Instead, God in Christ overflows toward mankind with grace and favor. So what we're seeing in the birth of Jesus is that God is not reaching out for friendship or reaching out to satisfy an emptiness or a lack in himself. In the incarnation, he's coming to serve because he has so much to give. The answer that Edwards gives is that a fountain doesn't overflow because it's missing something. A fountain overflows because it has so much. You see these glimpses of the fullness of what Jesus gave up in the incarnation a a few times. You can see it in a few places in scripture. One of the places where it almost is like he's letting you see further behind the curtain than almost any other place is that very intimate prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is anticipating his coming death and he's praying to the Father. And, And in his words... When you look at these words in John 17, he gives this glimpse of that relationship that he had with the Father. Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Think of the mountains of words that you could write on what Jesus is saying right there. He is claiming pre-existence, right? He is saying he existed before he was born. He's saying something about what his life was like before he was born. He's saying something about what life was like with the Father before he became incarnate in this world. 
Jesus is praying and he is acknowledging something before he was ever born, before there was ever a world for us to live in. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit existed in each other's presence in glory together. Before the incarnation happened, there was nothing average or weak or ugly or common about the Son of God. He was only magnificent. He was only beautiful and bright and majestic. I want you to grasp this. This first, because only by reaching to understand what the son had and what the son deserved and what the son was worthy of, if we don't grasp that, we will not understand what happened in the incarnation. We will not understand the weight of what was surrendered. Jesus was in the form of God. What that means? It means he deserved worship. It means he deserved the glory and the joy and the admiration of his fellow human beings when he appeared among us. He deserved deserved a better birth than he got. He deserved a glorious birth. He deserved a kingly birth. He deserved a, a palace birth. And yet he was born in a barn and laid in a manger. He deserved comfort and delight and obedience And instead, he received nothing of the sort. And when he did receive it, it was hardly matching what he merited. Instead, we saw him lowly and we considered him cursed by God. You see, we aren't amazed by the incarnation unless we reflect on who the son truly was. Without it, we won't appreciate what he gave up for us. We won't even understand what we mean when we say he gave up something for us. He was in the form of God, says Paul. The incarnation then represents a forsaken glory. The second point tells us what he did with that forsaken glory. He he took upon himself a human form. And that's the second point this morning. The text uses several phrases to highlight what Jesus did. Verse 6 says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is another way of saying that Jesus Christ could have looked at his fellow men and rightly said, I'm Jesus Christ, son of the living God. Bow down and and worship me. He could have said it. He could have demanded it. He would have been right to do it. He deserved to say that, and yet he walked among us as a man, and instead of demanding service, he served. Verse verse 7 says, he emptied himself. Now, this is a phrase that's prone to being misunderstood. Some people read this, and they think that means that somehow Jesus got rid of his divine nature in the incarnation, or that somehow Jesus lost his divine attributes. But Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't mean that Jesus was only a man with no divine nature in the incarnation. Paul is not saying that. He never ceased to be God. I think maybe a helpful way of putting it is like this. I think I've said this before as well. The incarnation is an act of addition, not an act of subtraction. The incarnation is an act of addition, not an act of subtraction. Now, some of you, you, you're like, I'm on Christmas break. I'm not supposed to be doing math right now. That's for when school resumes. Well, this is the most important math problem you could ever hear. The incarnation is addition, not subtraction. 
He doesn't lose his divine nature. He takes on an additional nature that's fully human. Really, when Paul talks about the son emptying himself, what Paul is saying is that Jesus had the right to all sorts of things. He had the right to to love, to comfort, to joy, to worship from us. But he sat those things aside. And those things that he set aside were the privileges and the rights that he could very well have demanded of us. He emptied himself of those rights. He set those things aside that he could have had and he could have done and the things that he had a right to. And he did it. He set it aside so that we could be saved and so that we could receive what we needed more. His philosophy was us before him. That's why he willingly did it. He emptied himself of the right to come in some exalted form. And instead he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, a little baby, uh, utterly helpless, small and needy, uh, subject to human life in a sinful world. That's what life in this world is like. And maybe you've felt that during this season as the days get longer and darker or shorter and darker. I think maybe that's the really the correct way of putting it. We get the days shorter and darker. And as the season comes on, maybe we start to feel a little sadder and we don't know why. And we forget that we need vitamin D. (laughs) And Jesus was subject to that same experience in time and space. And he's limited, right? He, He has to learn things sequentially. He had to read scripture and memorize scripture. He had to gain wisdom. He had to live like us. These are the constraints he willingly lived within. He wasn't a sinner. He didn't become a sinner, thankfully, But he sure looked like one of us. Paul says in Romans 8, 3, that Jesus was in the likeness of sinful flesh. You know, that phrase, that phrase is the closest the scriptures would ever dare to bring Jesus to sin in scripture. The likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like the rest of us sinners. He suffered like sinners. He lived like us He wasn't a sinner, but he was in the likeness of sinful flesh, says Paul. This is the sort of love that he has for us, for for mankind. He took pity on us. He came for our rescue, and it cost him. It was not a costless experience. Um, Think about the the way that Paul ends this hymn uh, in verse 8. He ends this hymn by saying, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, we saw this last week. I, uh, I had somebody thank me for talking about the death of Jesus when we talk about the birth of Jesus. You know, there is no talking about the birth of Jesus without talking about his death. We cannot know why he was born if we do not know why he lived. And we cannot know why he lived if we ignore his constant insistence over and over again, always ignored, <laughs> That he had to die. You know, he's, you know, we're in Matthew's gospel in our regular series. And every week, it seems like now, he's telling the disciples, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And all of them looking at each other and going, I have no idea what he's talking about. He constantly insists that he's got to die. He knows where this story ends. You see, Jesus was born to die and he lived with that ending in front of him all the time. 
You know, there are two parts to Paul's words here, right? Taking on human nature is one thing. Submitting to death is quite another. And it, it's not like it was a quick, painless, noble death. Um, a few months ago, I did a presentation for the uh, children here at St. Stephen's talking about Lady Jane Grey. And one of the things that I, I learned, I don't think I shared this with the kids. I felt like there was a lot of beheading in that story. And I was trying to get the, the head chopping out of the story as much as I could. Um, but when Lady Jane Grey was, was set to be executed, she asked the executioner, would you please make it quick and clean? And he promised her that he would. Um, what was she saying? She was saying, please make my suffering as quick as possible. And the executioner kept that promise because he had a respect for her. And he nodded to her and told her that he would. And he kept that promise. But think of Jesus' death. Jesus' death is anything but like Lady Jane, Jane Grey's death. Her death is quick and clean. His is filthy. His is bloody. His is prolonged and painful. He dies He dies the death of the grossest sinner you could imagine. If you can think of the grossest sin that somebody could commit and what that kind of person would deserve, you get something like the crucifixion of Jesus, don't you? He deserved the best and he endured the worst. He was the sinless Flawless son of God. He was pure in all his ways. None of us could ever accuse him of of even one wrong thing in all of his life. And yet in his death, he was treated like he was truly the worst and the grossest. It was such a it was such a horrible form of execution that the Romans wouldn't subject their own citizens to it. No matter what a Roman citizen did, they would not be crucified. They could not be crucified. They would be beheaded instead. I want you to get this picture that, that Paul is painting for us here. He is, he's painting us a picture of the greatest person who ever lived, and yet he willingly submitted to being treated like he was the worst. In another place, Paul says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He deserved to think of himself, and instead he thought of us. They need to become the righteousness of God, he says. And that, and that can't happen unless I am made sin for them. And I have to be incarnate to do that. Christian, he had you on his heart. He put aside himself. He put aside his priorities because he knew you needed them more. I don't know if this is a step too far on the cheesiness, but he had a gift for you. And the only way he could give it was at the cost of his own life. Don't forget Paul's larger point. The whole point he's really aiming at here. He says Jesus deserved better. He deserved something and for our sake, he did not get it. And here's where Paul is really going with this. He deserved we deserve our own rights and privileges less than Jesus did. Think of that again. We deserve our own rights and privileges less than Jesus did. And that is a vast understatement. And so if Jesus gave up something he truly deserved for us, we can give up the thing that we love most that we don't really deserve. That is Paul's point. That's the so what of the incarnation. If Jesus gave up something so great that belonged to him, that was rightly his, that he had every right to, surely we can yield ourselves for others 
when we as his followers have been purchased at great price by somebody else. Um, He came for us in human form and he gave up what he deserved. He set aside his priorities. He cared more about our priorities, our needs. He emptied himself of his rights and his privileges so that he could give us the rights and privileges of sons and daughters of the king. He gave up the rights and privileges he deserved and he gave them to us. And that's the third point this morning, which is an exalted result. You see it here in verse 9. Because what happens is this. In verse 9, Paul moves from the cross to the resurrection and beyond. He doesn't, he doesn't linger at the cross. The cross is important. The cross is ugly. The cross is hideous. But he doesn't stay there. Um, this is part of the reason we don't have part of the reason we don't have crucifixes in our churches. Because Christ was resurrected. He did not simply die and remain there eternally crucified. Instead, the author of Hebrews says that Christ was once for all put to death for us. Right? A sacrifice once for all, not a continuing, ongoing thing. It's where we went last week too, right? The, the resurrection. Right? You see, you can't isolate the birth and the cross and the ascension. They are all together. They're woven together into the same whole tapestry. Look what Paul does in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the song that Paul includes in this letter moves us through all three of Jesus's states because in it we see him before the incarnation in the glory that he enjoyed with the father then Paul moves to the incarnation and the birth and the life where he emptied himself of all the privileges of the God man and then we see him now in his glorified and radiant state as well the word Paul uses here for what the son now enjoys is not just highly exalted. He actually uses the phrase hyper exalted uh, in the Greek. The word is huper, uh, and huper and hyper are that's it's not an accident that they're very close to each other. Um, Jesus is already by nature exalted and glorious, but because of what he did, because of what he gave up, because of what he did for us, the Father gives him a status. He gives him a title. He is now hyper exalted above and beyond. And the result is worship. Glory, bowed knees, awed hearts, delighted saints, the highest name. Do you see it? We love the manger But the cross is where God truly shows himself to us in his full self-sacrifice. It is where we see his glory shine the most. And I know that sounds ridiculous because the cross is so ugly. The grossest, most horrible death. And God says, that right there, that's my son. That right there, that's, that's what he's like. That's how great he is. That's what he will give up to rescue people who absolutely don't deserve it. 
Those are the depths that he will dive to. That's the level he'll sink to. Nothing is beneath him, whatever it takes. Look at him. And he points to this bloodied, mangled, broken man on a chunk of wood in the Judean countryside in real time, real history, real space. And he says, that is what my son is like. That's what God will do to show grace in the extreme. And now God the Father has hyper-exalted him above and beyond. A forsaken glory, a human form, and now an exalted result. This is one of those passages in Scripture where it takes no effort to do the application. Um, It is right there. It's woven throughout. Paul says what he wants from the very beginning. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the application. The application is, it's one of those disappointing applications on the one hand, because really all Paul is saying is think differently. You know, at its most fundamental level, he's saying, have, think differently about yourself than you currently do. And yet, obviously, if we have our own heart and mind changed, then our behavior is going to shift as a consequence Imagine how different your life looks if others are more important than you. If you really believe that, because Christ has modeled it and lived it and given it for you, how does your life look differently, right? If someone else needs help when you have plans, rearrange. Painful, I know. Um, If it's obvious someone's overwhelmed, allow yourself to be overwhelmed for them. You had Christmas plans that someone else needs to be a part of. Make the table bigger, right? Um, If you see people around you who are burdened, Paul says, bear one another's burdens. If you see a brother or sister in need, by all means, do what you can to help them, right? This is is a season where we are surrounded by temptations to self-soothing, self-care, self-focus, And it's also a season where we are saturated with all the motivations we could possibly be motivated with, be be saturated in to give of ourselves. So we're, we are immersed in this culture that is at once saying, make sure you take care of yourself. And at the very same time, we have a gospel telling us he will take care of you. You take care of them. The season's not about you. It's actually about everyone but you, if you're willing to hear it. You want the perfect Christmas. It's not about you. You want the perfect dinner. It's not about you. You hope you get that certain gift. It's not about you. Uh, You just want one day of relaxation. And all of December has been work and exhaustion in its purest, most concentrated form. Good news, it's not about you. (laughs) I'm not saying we don't matter. God is not saying that we don't matter. He's just saying everyone else matters more. Um, That's Paul's argument. And boy, is it hard to hear. Uh, It can be, anyway. If you're a believer, then all I'm trying to do is get you to see what is already true and what already screams at you all year long. Think about this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. He doesn't say which should be yours in Christ Jesus. He says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He is trying to get you to see what is already true. He wants you to see what's already there. 
He is doing the same thing preaching always does, especially if you've heard it for a long time. He's just telling you what you already know. He's reminding you of the thing that you forgot. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What's the mechanism by which Paul says this attitude becomes ours? He doesn't say willpower. He doesn't say meditation or yoga. It is not even through sheer discipline and self-control. The mechanism Paul points to is union with Christ. Because he uses that phrase. He says, it's yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That's union with Christ's language there. And so if you are united to Christ by faith, then his, this mind is already yours. It's already with you. We already have the thing we need. We have Jesus. We are united to Jesus. So this attitude is ours already. My job is not to teach you something new. It's to teach you something old. Paul is writing this 2,000 years ago, and he's even admitting that all he's doing is teaching them something old. See, the world thinks that knowledge is the problem. They think that if only we could have more information, if we could have more data, that the world's problems would be fixed. And we know the truth, though. Our greatest problem is not a knowledge problem. It is a love problem. And over time, our love degrades. And we start to think that it's our job to put ourselves first because we start to believe that no one else will. Our problem is not a knowledge problem. Our problem is we neglect and we suppress. So for some of you, you are in Christ. In fact, I hope I could say most of you. You are in Christ. But you need to have your love for the Savior renewed again. God, God's word can feed that and bless you so that you love and trust him more. And as a consequence, you have this attitude among yourselves once again. But it is possible today that you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ for yourself at all. You might know about him. You might have heard of him. You may have been around church all your life. But have you repented of your sins? Have you rested in Jesus Christ? Or have you only been studying him? You might have a religious background. That is not what God calls for. You might be baptized. That is not enough. You might be a member in good standing of Christ's church. That is not enough, as important as it is. Those things are important. They, they, they matter. They're commanded by Jesus. They're good for you. They are not what saves. The call is very clear and very plain. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. <clears throat> Believing in Jesus is not a slogan. It is not a thing that if you repeat it, then you get to be in the club. Believing in Jesus doesn't just mean, well, I'm okay with Jesus. I have no problem with Jesus. I like religious people. They te- I think they're better citizens than other people. It doesn't mean you just admire Jesus from a distance. Instead, it means that you go to him and you admit your sin. Admit that you need the one who became sin on the cross to give his life for you. To trust him and stop trusting yourself. To stop letting this be your life and let it be his life. Become his disciple. If you don't don't do that, then you will not understand what Paul is talking about here. All of this will be a distant truth that you might feel is an interesting theory or an interesting idea. But if you submit, 
if you bow the knee, if you live in submission to him, if you actually place your faith in Christ alone, he will do something that the rest of the world doesn't understand. He'll give you his spirit. He'll grant you forgiveness. He will give you everything that you need to follow him. And when that happens, you will suddenly have something that you can't do for yourself and that you probably spent all your life prior to that trying to do. By faith in Jesus We have a vital, real, life-giving connection to the one who became a servant, even though he had the right to heaven itself. He really shares with us his own life and his own self-sacrifice and his own humility so that we can share it with others because they come first now. We can have this mind among ourselves. We can set aside our preferences and our prerogatives because we are in the one who did all these things. Already, Let's pray together. Father, you love us. And you knew that as your people, we needed more than just a good example. We needed more than just an inspiration. We needed a savior. And you sent your son born of a woman, born under the law, to face the weight and the penalty of sin. To set aside his divine rights and divine privileges. To set aside the glorious abode of heaven. To come here as one of us and to do good for us. Let us have the mind of Christ. Let us embrace it. Let selfishness and self-interest and self-preservation be far from us, Lord. Help us to reflect your son. Send your spirit into our midst so that we do more than just act like good people. Help us to actually be in Christ and to live like it. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen.